chapters, Revelation chapters 10 and 11. And we ask, Lord, for your blessing. Lord, please give us wisdom into these uh, ancient prophecies. Lord, we believe they have relevance for our world today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts to encourage us, Lord. Challenge, Lord, us where we live. Uh, We ask that you uh, be glorified today, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let me start this morning with a top 10 list. I'm kind of fond of top 10 lists. This morning I have the top 10 ways to recognize that a person is excited excited about end times Bible prophecy. Top 10 ways to know you're an end times Bible prophecy junkie. You ready? You ready for these? Okay, number 10, you always ride with the top down on your convertible just in case of the rapture. Number nine, you never buy green bananas. Number eight, you're convinced COVID-19 is a pestilence of the last days, but you refuse to wear a mask. Number seven, barcode scanners make you nervous. Number six, every time Israel appears in the news, they try to figure out how it matches up with last day's prophecy. Number five, you refuse to cash your income tax refund check because it's made out in the amount of $666. Number four, you can remember more signs in the end times than you can the Ten Commandments. Number three, you've actually tried various mathematical calculations to determine the identity of the Antichrist. Number two, your favorite book is Left Behind. And the number one reason, you get goosebumps every time you hear a trumpet blast. And I've got to admit, I'm one of those guys. I certainly am. When I think about The fact that I could be part of the generation that gets raptured to heaven, I get really, really excited. Imagine, the trumpet blows. Then in a moment, in a very twinkling of an eye, we're transformed. A metamorphosis occurs in the clouds. We peel off these mortal bodies and model our immortality. That's when our eyes open and we see Jesus. He roars like a lion. We see him enthroned and in glory, yet he looks like a lamb. His scars are still visible. We're instantly reminded of the cost of our forgiveness. And we're standing before the throne of God. An innumerable number of angels surround us. We join with the redeemed of all the ages singing, holy, holy, holy. At last, our struggle is over. Tears are wiped away. Sorrow and pain are no more. Crowns are passed out. The world today is topsy-turvy. The good guy gets penalized while evil people get away with their crimes. Cancer and hurricanes and terrorism strike indiscriminately. But when Jesus returns, he'll right all wrongs. Faith will be vindicated. Justice will be served. Finally, Jesus will see to it that faith is rewarded and rebellion gets punished. Jesus will turn this world right side up. And our prayers will be answered. Finally, our cries for justice and vindication and righteousness and an end to evil will all be fulfilled. One day, Jesus will purge God's creation of all traces of sin and return it to its perfect utopia. 
will live forever in unbroken fellowship with our Savior. Who can't get excited about these prospects? Imagine a world where greed and pride aren't corporate policy. A world where school teachers make seven figures and ball players play for the love of the game. Can you imagine? Where UN peacekeepers no longer have jobs since there's no wars. Where racial groups organize street dances rather than protests. Where police officers pass out free coffee to motorists because that's all they have to do. Where emergency room doctors become historians since the viruses they once fought no longer exist. And where neighborhood gangs rumble over which group will get to man the Salvation Army kettle at Christmas time. Can you imagine? This is the kind of world that Jesus will order when he returns to reign on this earth. And I, for one, cannot wait. There is one heavenly reward that I would think every Christian should be in line to receive. I hope so. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 lists the crown of righteousness. Paul tells us that Jesus gives this crown to all who have loved his appearing. I mean, who doesn't want Jesus to return? We all should be excited about the appearing of our Lord Jesus. I have no doubt that the revelation John saw on the island of Patmos caused him to love the Lord's return. But in chapter 10, John has a sobering experience. The idea of Jesus returning to earth to establish his kingdom and enforce his rule is the fulfillment of man's most noblest hopes. But be careful of what you ask for. For John realized through this revelation that darkness comes before daybreak. That winter precedes spring. That death occurs before resurrection. That a wound has to be purged before it can be healed. And that every new birth requires labor pains. The exaltation of Christ also means the annihilation of those who stand in his way. For the world to become right, wrongs have to be punished. And wrongdoers have to be judged. Even when those wrongdoers are our own loved ones. See, the coming of Jesus is bittersweet. And that's what John learns here in chapter 10. Well, he begins, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book opened in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Make no mistake about it, this mighty angel has attributes that can only be applied to our Lord Jesus. Chapter 5 identified Jesus as the Lion of Judah. He sits on heaven's throne. He is the king of the jungle. Who else but Jesus shouts as when a lion roars. And then verse 3, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. The judgments in Revelation are viewed as the breaking of seven seals and the sounding of seven trumpets and the emptying out of seven bowls. Yet here's another set of judgments, seven thunders. But we don't get to hear the thunderclaps. For John tells us, now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, 
I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Apparently, there are some insights that are not for humans to know. Did you realize that? That there, in some issues, God keeps us out of the loop. Oh, my. That, that, that's a truth that proud, pompous, know-it-all human beings like us have a hard time swallowing, isn't it? But it's true. As a good father, God knows that his kids don't always need all the information. He tells us only what we need to know. If you haven't learned that, I'm sure you will. And then verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. Now realize the impressiveness of what we're seeing. This mighty angel has a rainbow for a crown. He wears a cloud for a robe. His face shines like the sun. His feet are like dual exhaust flamethrowers. And he's got an open book in his hand. This should be familiar to you. In Revelation 5, the lion took the deed to the universe. Jesus holds title to all God's creation like a lamb. He paid for it with his own blood. Now he's cracked his seals to take possession. The trumpet judgments were the seventh and final seal. He's about to take possession of what belongs to him. Reminds me of the old man who met the devil. One Sunday, Satan walked right into the church. Of course, when he did, everyone started jumping over pews, running out of the building. This was the devil himself. Everybody but this one old fellow sat down front. He stayed seated on the front row. No panic in him at all. In fact, Satan shouted at him. He said, why aren't you scared of me? Don't you know who I am? The old boy shrugged and he said, why should I be scared of the likes of you? I've lived with your sister for 50 years. (laughs) Well, I thought it was funny. Hey, this world has been wedded to Satan for a long, long time. He has had the run of the place, if you haven't noticed. Satan has had a free hand to spread his mischief. His evil is now firmly embedded in the systems of this world. But all this evil and rebellion is about to come to a close. On the cross, Jesus redeemed the universe that was under Satan's sway. Now, with the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets, he reposed the planet. The Son of God takes back what belongs to him. Jesus evicts the rebels and takes possession, and he ends up judging everyone who stands in his way. This is what we see here in verse 5. With one foot on the sea and with one foot on the land, Jesus straddles continents. Like a cowboy on the back of a wild horse, he saddles up a bucking planet. He's going to break it. With one foot or with one hand, he holds his proof of ownership, this book. Now with the other hand, he raises it and he takes an oath as in a courtroom. Verse 5. He raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, The earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. 
But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Only Jesus can bring to finish all of God's promises. And here the Lord pledges to solve the mystery of the ages, that there should be delay. Isn't this the great mystery that perplexes you and me today? Why is it that God is waiting to establish his kingdom? Why the delay? Why has God tolerated evil for so long? Why does he listen to the continual lies of mankind? Why does sin go unpunished? Why is Satan allowed such a long leash? Why does God wait to see the earth set in order? Why not now? Why delay? Well, by this point in the drama, the issue is a mute point. For the delay is done. Judgment has now begun. But what about for John? Think of John. After this vision, he'll have to go back from the future to the island of Patmos. 2,000 years of inequity and injustice will await him and the church. The Lord Jesus does reveal to John the mystery of his delay, but he does it in a not-so-usual way, a most unusual way. Not through reason, not through argument. Instead, the Lord Jesus communicates this truth to John viscerally. Not rationally. Rather, he hits John in the gut with the truth. He plucks John's heartstrings. You've heard it said, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, that's the strategy the Lord uses on John and on us at the end of chapter 10. Notice verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me, that is to John again, and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Here is the revelation realization. John's experience at the end of chapter 10 is the whole point of this book. If you take the revelation as nothing but a futuristic prophecy, you've missed the whole point. It is far more than that. It is motivation for our very lives. You know, as kids growing up, we all had a favorite candy. Mine was Zots. Zots is where the fizz is. It has a sour center encased by a sweet outer shell. So you start sucking on the sweetness. And then after about 90 seconds or so, a sour explosion shocks your taste buds. Zots is the ultimate sweet and sour experience until you read Revelation. At first, when John eats this book, it produces a sweet taste in his mouth. But as he digests its implications, as he tries to stomach what it all means, the initial sweetness gets replaced with a bitter bite. What tasted like honey goes on to cause a bad case of heartburn. Now, of course, eating the revelation doesn't mean we should add ink and paper to our diet. John's experience here is a metaphor. 
We too need to eat up Revelation by reading and grasping its implications. We need to dwell on Jesus, not just as he once was, but as he now is and will be revealed. We need to celebrate his role as the king of the jungle. Jesus will tame the rebellion and evict the usurper and right all wrongs. And initially this produces a sweet taste. Jesus will one day kiss away our pain and put an end to our fears in his loving embrace and for the last time roll away the burdens we've carried. He's going to welcome us weary travelers home who among us isn't excited about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But then when you mull over what this means for humanity as a whole, for the non-Christian members of your own family, even your friends and your acquaintances and your co-workers, suddenly this becomes hard to stomach. It creates heartburn. Or we're quick to condemn to hell the nameless driver that cuts us off in traffic. But one day hell will be unleashed on people we know and love. The people who refuse to yield their lives to the authority of Jesus Christ. And bringing about a better world People we know and love who don't believe are going to suffer, and terribly so. And this should be a hard realization for us to swallow. You see, if you read Revelation, then just lay down your Bible and resume your normal activities. Just go back to the TV set or your video games or your exercise class. You didn't get it, man. You understand Revelation when it hits you in the gut. When you realize what's at stake for you and for others. See, John records his reaction to this sweet and sour experience in verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John, you need to keep preaching the gospel. It's been said without tears the revelation was not written. Neither can it without tears be understood. God is wanting John to feel what he feels. God takes no personal pleasure in judgment. His thoughts are always sweet and sour. He loves us, but he hates sin. Realize no matter how you interpret the four horsemen and the burning mountain and the locust, the point is this, Jesus wins in the end. He eliminates the opposition, and that's why we need to bow to Jesus now, join his team and persuade everyone else we can to do the same. Well, in the next chapter, we see God's love on display. Even in the midst of mankind's rebellion, God seeks peace. You could say in chapter 11, God holds out an olive branch to the wicked world. Literally, he extends two olive branches. Not literal limbs, but lights, two witnesses. Revelation 11 proves that God's love is incurable. You know, you can grieve God, provoke God, even anger God. You can push God into a corner where he's forced to judge you, but you'll never cause God to stop loving you. Events seen in chapter 11 appear in a future temple that's yet to be built. And in verse 1, John sets the stage. Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. 
And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now understand, the revelation came to John around 95 AD after the Roman legion had destroyed the Jewish temple. John had frequented the temple since he was a tot. He had offered sacrifices there. In fact, this was the same temple precincts in which Jesus taught and performed miracles. And John was shocked when Jesus predicted its destruction. Yet true to his word, in 70 AD, the Romans toppled the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. Here now, John gets a glimpse into the future, and he sees a new temple. Understand, for the last 1950 years, the Jews have been without a temple. Currently, their sacred site, Mount Moriah, or as it's called, the Temple Mount, houses several Muslim structures the most prominent being the, rock, the Dome of the Rock, which was built in 691 A.D. by Caliph Omar. For 1,300 years, except for a brief time in the Crusades, the Temple Mount has remained under Islamic control until our generation. It was in June of 1967, in the midst of the Six-Day War, that Israeli paratroopers led by General Moshe Dayan stormed East Jerusalem and took control of the sacred mount. And for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, the Jews had access to their holy site. Suddenly, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple was now within the realm of possibility. Yet sadly, Dayan chose to placate the Arabs by assigning the Muslim religious authority administration of the Temple Mount. Today, Jews worship at the Wailing Wall, west of the Mount, and Israeli soldiers patrol the 35-acre platform, but all the religious activities on the Mount itself are supervised by the Muslims. Frankly, I like to defy their authority whenever I go there. I like to tuck a Bible in my pants and sneak it onto the Temple Mount. I'll read it at an appropriate spot. The Muslims outlaw Bible teaching and Bible reading on the Temple Mount. And it's this Muslim presence that stands in the way of the Jews rebuilding their temple. And yet every year, the Jewish desire to reconstruct the temple intensifies. Over the last 53 years, groups have formed to make this a reality. Preparations have been readied. Even actions actions have been plotted. Historian Israel Eldad, he stresses the urgency Israelis feel to rebuild their temple. He says, from David's liberation of Jerusalem until the construction of the temple by Solomon, only one generation passed. So it is with us. When asked what will become of the mosque, Eldad replied, who knows, perhaps an earthquake. But I believe a more creative solution will be found. Notice in verse 1, John is told to measure the temple. But he gets further instruction in verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. The temple's outer court has been given to the Gentiles, John's told. Remember, John's writing, seeing future. Now, until recently, it was assumed by Jews and Muslims that the Dome of the Rock was built over the stone 
where the Ark of the Covenant sat in the temple's Holy of Holies. Today, though, that assumption is debated. Some archaeologists now believe that the true site of the temple was actually 300 yards north of the dome, directly across from the eastern gate. In fact, there's a passage in the Jewish Mishnah that says the high priest standing in the Holy of Holies could look through the veil out the doors and see the eastern gate. Whenever we go to the Temple Mount, I can't wait to get to that little gazebo northwest of the Dome of the Rock. The Muslims call it the Dome of the Tablets or the Dome of the Spirits, both fitting names for the site of the former temple. And under that cupola is a slab of bedrock. For me and for some biblical archaeologists, this is the actual location of the temple's Holy of Holies. And if enough Jews reach a similar conclusion, this could figure mightily into future negotiations. This new site puts the Muslim shrine in the temple's outer court. And notice here in Revelation 11, the angel tells John to measure the temple all but its outer court. And why? It'll be given to the Gentiles. Perhaps the rider on the white horse the world leader who brokers this false peace, the Antichrist, may strike a deal allowing for both a Jewish temple and a Muslim mosque side by side, supposedly ushering in an age of peaceful tolerance. You can hear it now. Well, verse 1 sets the stage. Verse 2 sets the time. Of these Gentiles in verse 1 we're told, and they will tread the holy city underfoot, For 42 months. And here is the first mention in Revelation of any timetable. And it harkens back to a famous passage, a famous biblical time frame from Daniel. Daniel 9 appoints 70 weeks of seven years, or 490 years, for the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. It's an amazing prophecy. I wish we had time to get into it. It's the prophecy that predicted the day Jesus rode his donkey down the Mount of Olives and presented himself as Israel's Messiah 500 years in advance. It's a fascinating prophecy. But the prophecy hasn't been completely fulfilled for it leaves one week, a final seven-year period for the future. That last seven years begins when a Roman ruler signs a treaty with Israel. And it concludes with God's final judgments. And in between, at the midpoint of the seven years or the 42-month mark, events occur that relate to this rebuilt temple. The Roman leader who signed the treaty, he breaks it and he desecrates the Jewish temple. Jesus called it the abomination of desolation. As the Romans of old, this blasphemous leader now erects an idol in the temple. The Gentiles then tread the holy city underfoot for the last half of these final seven years, or 42 months. The negotiations that allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple will be replaced, no doubt, with policies of oppression. Verse 3 tells us, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. The 1,260 days is another way to count 42 months or half of seven years. 
two witnesses will speak for God in Jerusalem in the temple against the rebellion. These two men will literally be God's dynamic duo. Along with 144,000 witnesses and the angels that are in heaven, in the heavens, they'll preach God's final offer of salvation. These men are clothed in sackcloth, notice, not Gucci suits. They oppose all that this materialistic world values. They call the earth to repentance and faith in Jesus, the true Christ. And this draws ire, the ire of the false Christ. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. You remember we mentioned how that much of Revelation is an allusion to the Old Testament. And this speaks of Zechariah chapter 4. There the prophet saw two lamps whose light was fueled by a perpetual flow of olive oil. They drew oil straight from the olive trees. In Zechariah 4, the lamps represented Israel's leaders at the time. Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the governor. And the olive trees were symbolic of the power that fueled these men. In Zechariah 4 verse 6, God declared, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. You see, the two men in Zechariah's day, as well as these two witnesses in the last days, hey, as well as all God's witnesses, even today, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. All Christian witness is fueled by the oil of God's Holy Spirit. His Spirit is a perpetual spring of love and joy and peace and goodness and power. And it bubbles up in you, friend. Have you tapped into it? Are you drawing from His Spirit? It's true of everyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit that we can be a witness for Jesus through His power. It was true of the dynamic duo here, and it's true of you. And then verse 5 tells us more. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. In other words, these are not your ordinary Christian soldiers. These two witnesses are special ops. They're in a witness protection program. You know, oftentimes between the services, what I'll do is I'll slip back in the back to the bathroom back there and I'll brush my teeth. Why? Because I love the congregation. And and, and I don't want to talk to somebody or pray with someone and offend them with bad breath. But these witnesses defend themselves with bad breath. It's a lethal case of halitosis right here. They spew fire on their enemies. Verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. These men are more than than New Testament pastors. They're more like Old Testament prophets. If you know the Old Testament, torching enemies and shutting off rain sounds like Elijah. Changing water to blood and calling up plagues is from Moses' arsenal. It's possible that these two witnesses in Revelation 11 will be guest appearances of both Moses and Elijah. And this would be the perfect pair to reach the Jews. Moses represents God's law. Elijah was God's chief prophet. 
You, you recall too in Matthew 17, on top of Mount Hermon, Jesus' countenance changed. You remember the occasion? His face shined like the sun. His clothes sparkled with white. His humanity was peeled back and his glory was allowed to peek through. And guess who appeared alongside Jesus? There were two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Of course, there are other theories as to the identity of these last day's witnesses. But who they are is not the point. What's strategic about them is what they do and why. These two men are God's last ditch duo. John 1 verse 11 says of Jesus, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. You remember while on earth the Jews were Jesus' priority. He came to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And the Jews will also receive his last appeal. These two witnesses will speak to the Jews. And what happens next in verse 7 is sure to have a sobering effect. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Here the hellish beast ascends from the bottomless pit. This is the rider on the white horse who brokered the false peace of chapter 6. He's called the Antichrist. And he puts out a contract on God's two witnesses. For 42 months, the beast has been unable to touch them. But now that their message is delivered, God lifts his witness protection and they're murdered in the streets. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. These two men will lie side by side in the same streets through which Jesus carried his cross. This is God's holy city. It's Jerusalem. And yet look at her nicknames. Sodom was notorious for immorality and for sexual perversion. Egypt was a hotbed for idolatry and spiritual perversion. Jerusalem is holy in name only, obviously. And this is certainly the case today. One day its streets will run red with innocent blood. And then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. The murderous beast from hell, he keeps the two corpses on ice as an example to everyone in the world who dares to call for repentance and witness for Jesus. And notice the technology this anticipates. Nations will see their dead bodies. Prior to the first satellite TV broadcast in 1962, this was an impossibility. Now, though, there's CNN Live, no less. In fact, log on to the Wailing Wall webcam and you'll see a 24-hour live stream already in place. The Antichrist kills these men and calls it a holiday. In verse 10, the world celebrates an anti-Christmas It says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. I once saw a Christmas card that depicted a happy family all around the Christmas tree. They were exchanging gifts with one another. And then it quoted verse 10. Make merry and send gifts to one another. Well, the quote was accurate, but the context was a little off. Here, God's servants are murdered. 
And folks around the world are caroling and drinking eggnog and exchanging gifts in celebration. It's the anti-Christmas for an anti-Christ world. And here's why the world celebrates. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Please pay attention to this. The faithfulness of two men tortured the souls of all men. So much so that the world wanted to drown out the truth. I hope you know there are people like that today. They don't want to hear the truth. They've hardened their hearts. The world doesn't want to hear of God's truth. That marriage is only between a man and a woman. That life begins at conception. That the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. That the Bible is not just another opinion. That morality isn't open to your own private interpretation. These positions are hated now and they will be in the future even more so. They'll cause the death of God's servants. Now imagine the Antichrist. He's throwing a party. The world is tuned in on the webcam. It's like Times Square on New Year's Eve. Everyone's glass is raised. It's just about time for a toast. When suddenly the camera spins around and focuses on the corpses of these two dead witnesses. Verse 11 tells us. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. The witnesses come back to life. Don't be shocked if Anderson Cooper swallows his microphone. (laughs) The world is at the party hoping to see the apple drop, but God warns that the hammer is about to fall. And the result? And great fear fell on those who who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The old city of Jerusalem is tight quarters, if you've ever been there. An earthquake would cause walls to crumble and roofs to cave in. The carnage would be severe. And yet, this is what it'll take for the Jews to be saved. Finally, they'll realize That they've been following the false Christ, the wrong Christ, and they'll turn to Jesus Christ. Messiah says in Zechariah 12 verse 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. In Romans 11 26, Paul predicts that in the end, all Israel will be saved and this event will be the turning point. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. A seventh trumpet is about to blow. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In the Greek language, there's a way to speak of a future event in the past tense. So that when you hear it, you realize that the person has total certainty of the outcome. This is like a foregone conclusion. This is the language used here in verse 14. Heaven is anticipating the Lamb's inevitable victory. God's kingdom will swallow up the kingdoms of men. It's a jungle out there, but Jesus is the king of the jungle. 
And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. It's not that Jesus will reign. He's reigning now. But soon he'll open the scroll and he'll repo what he's already redeemed. But don't expect a concession speech from the opposition. For verse 18 says, the nations were angry. Hey, people don't like to be told what they can and can't do. They get angry, don't they? But man's wrath won't stop God's wrath. Verse 18, the elders say, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Notice God's to-do list at the end of the age. Pretty amazing. Judge those who died in rebellion. Reward his saints, both prophets and, and saints, his servants. And then destroy those whose rebellion caused God to destroy his own creation. How's that for a full day at the office? And then chapter 11 ends. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. It's a tale of two temples. In the temple on earth, there's chaos and carnage, whereas there's order in heaven's temple. John sees the ark of the covenant, the throne of God. It rains. The earth has rebuffed God's last ditch duo. Now the die is cast. Friends, God's love is forever, but not his pardon. Reject God's God's love long enough and he'll honor your decision. You'll live forever without him. You know, it's ironic, but mankind's spiritual bankruptcy gets revealed here in chapter 11. Chapter 11. God's message is love, but the world kills his messengers. No wonder great hail awaits people of this world in more ways than one. So, Father, we thank you for your word today, a sobering passage. Lord, I pray that we would read these words and would take them to heart. And Lord, as we think about the coming of Christ, the end of our own troubles, the joy we'll experience in heaven with you, Lord, it is sweet to the taste. But when we think about the judgment that's due and the terrible suffering that will occur, it turns that sweetness into a sour taste. Lord, I pray that we would be busy with the calling you've placed on all of our lives, and that's to share your love with the people around us, to declare to this world that today is the day of salvation, that today the door is open, today you are on the threshold calling for us to come. You're standing at the door and you're knocking. Lord, I pray that we would be about telling others about our hope, the hope of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, I pray that many, many, many would be saved in these last days. Lord, I pray that you'd bring people to this church hungry and eager for you. That you'll bring people to us and to our homes and to our workplace. And, and you'll, you'll, Lord, give us opportunities to, to share of your great mercies and grace with the people around us. How desperately this world needs you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.